Hi, I'm Pinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, And through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Welcome to season two, episode two of It's a Continent. Hello, everyone. guys. Hi, everyone. Uh, Yeah, so this week we're continuing to explore the northern regions of the continent and Mm -hmm. we're discussing Western Sahara, a country which is often described as Africa's last colony. To be honest, I literally never heard of this country until... No, I'm not going to lie. Like, a couple of weeks ago and I was like, oh my god, what? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Even on the map it's weird because it's got those dotted lines that are like, hmm, is this... What is this? What is this? (laughs) This is new. It's definitely worth... I'd encourage you to have Google Maps up if you've never heard of this country before. Just so you can, you know, figure out where we're at exactly uh, this week. And like we said... We've never heard of Western Sahara before, but here's a couple of quick facts on the country. It's mostly desert and has a population of around 500,000. And one of its main natural resources is phosphate. And it also has a big fishing industry and growing tourism industry. Obviously, this was pre-COVID. Yeah, tourism. It's like, who? What's, what's yeah, that? Yeah. What, what, don't what know is what that, that is. I, I literally don't know if I could ever experience that again. <laughs> and obviously, lots of potential for oil. It would not be... An, it's a continent episode without a mention of oil so yeah where is the oil where is the oil it's a mantra Mm, tell me about it and to be fair it's looking pretty attractive at the moment isn't it western sahara you know understanding the natural resources and all of that i think will help in explaining why it's still colonized Mm. and yeah and for us it's a bit different i don't think we've ever done one like this where it's you know a territory which is disputed and things so yeah this one will be is an interesting one let's just put it yeah. like that it's an interesting one we're, we're entering new territories if you pardon yeah, the pun enter- <laughs> <laughs> check you out that was unintentional but <laughs> don't 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 be proud of it don't be proud of it. i'm not, not i'm actually not, quite ashamed <laughs> Right, should we get going? Yeah, let's get going. Let's start off with Western Sahara's Spanish history. Western Sahara is a former Spanish colony and was under Spain's control between 1884 to 1975. During that time, it was known as the Spanish Sahara. So cheeky bit of alliteration there. Is this like, this is like a shout out to all the English students in the, who are listening. I didn't do English lit for no reason. This, She can know. spot alliteration like nobody. <laughs> Spain gained official ownership of Western Sahara at the 1884 Berlin Conference, which, you know, we often refer to this incident in our episodes, don't we? Um, Also known as the Colonizer Bun Fight, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we do talk about it quite a fair amount um, in our previous episodes. It's important to understand the significance of this event as it essentially shaped how Africa is randomly carved up today and why you often see borders that look a little bit too straight. So, again, we do encourage you to look at Google Maps. At the conference, you had all the major European players coming together, deciding which part of Africa they wanted to exploit, to put it quite simply. And of course, there were no Africans involved in deciding who would claim them. So yeah, this is the first time we've seen Spain, you know, join the Colonisation League, the Colonizer League. Yeah. Yeah. Are, they, are they in the Premier League or are they in the Championship? Another football reference for me there, but... Um... <laughs> you have managed to... <laughs> 
football referencings back to back. I think that's a record. Watch out for the Easter eggs, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this is the first time we've had Spain. Like, yeah. I've literally, you know, you've got your the UK, Belgium and all of that. And Spain's just popping its head and like, hello, here we are. Um, we will have that one place, Western Sahara. We also want to be involved. We're getting a bit of FOMO over here, you know? It's interesting to see them in this, actually. Mm. I've never, literally, I've never ever heard about Spain being involved in the continent's history, but hey, they got yeah, in. Yeah, they wanted to get involved as well. In the 1960s, the United Nations began to push for the independence of colonies. They introduced the Declaration on the Granting of Independence to Colonial Countries and Peoples, which condemned the subjugation of peoples to alien subjugation and domination, and declared that immediate steps be taken to transfer all powers to the people in the colonies, without any conditions or reservations based on their freely expressed will and desire. During this period, the people of Western Sahara established the Polisario Front, which stands for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Saguier and Hamra and Rio de Oro. The Polisario is an indigenous Sawari independence movement who strive to decolonize Western Sahara. The Polisario Government in Exile, the SADR, which stands for the Sawari Arab Democratic Republic, is an internationally recognized government of the people of Western Sahara, the Saharis. At the same time, Morocco decided that Western Sahara historically belonged to them and they were going to fight to get their supposed country back. The final straw which led to Spain withdrawing from Western Sahara came in 1975, when Morocco's king, King Hassan II, and his government encouraged over 300,000 unarmed Moroccans to march into Western Sahara. This event was known as the Green March. In the documentary Life is Waiting, um, and we've put a link in the episode show notes, so check it out, they mentioned that Spain was unable to put a stop to Morocco's intrusion, as it would have meant firing at women and children. King Hassan II was able to bring so many people together because there was a lack of knowledge and understanding of the government's true motives. And at the same time, there was a lot of propaganda, which the Moroccan government used to its advantage. Soon after the Green March, Spain finally agreed to withdraw from Western Sahara. And uh, yeah, as we say, this is where the mess truly starts, because... You know, you've got that usual narrative that you that we see with many African countries when they gain their independence is that they're, quote, free to set up their government infrastructure and manage the country as they please. But mm-hmm. is this really the case, you know? And also to just have Morocco all of a sudden decide, do you know what? I think we owned that before colonisation. I think that one was ours. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, whose it, was it? It, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is honestly the biggest de- debate. It's basically like, who's the the father? Do you know what I mean? It's of a bit like Maury, but with We're- countries. <laughs> Yeah, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Who's the baby's father? Let's do a DNA test. If only you could do that for a country that would have been solving this issue. But hey. Spain didn't just walk away. They came together with Morocco and Mauritania to sign a treaty called the Madrid Accords. This treaty confirmed that Spain would hand over administrative responsibility of Western Sahara to Morocco and Mauritania, with the southern half of the country given to Mauritania and the northern half to Morocco. It's believed that the treaty also highlights special privileges Spain would continue to receive following its withdrawal. And these privileges included access to Western Sahara's phosphates, minerals and coastal fisheries. Of course, of course it would, because why wouldn't it? Yeah, why what was the it, point you know, of colonising a country? You, what is <laughs> the point if I'm not going to benefit from it? Do you if know what I, I mean? can't I'm take gonna... it after independence. 
do you know what I mean? I'm just going to walk away and I'm going to leave you guys free with nothing. Of course I need some Yeah, privilege. oh no, that definitely, definitely can't happen. The audacity of just walking away from something and a situation you've created without <laughs> taking something away. I like honestly, these countries. Just, yeah, it, it, honestly, it's just ridiculous. The Madrid Accords was agreed without the consent of the local population because for them, the country belonged to the SADR. And it's clear that Spain didn't care that the country wasn't being handed over to the rightful owner. They even called for the Saharan populations originating in the territory to determine their future. Was it really Spain's responsibility to ensure that they gave Western Sahara back to its rightful owner, whoever whoever that was really, and who is the owner? I think it's an interesting question though, because they do want to, I'm definitely not, I'm not advocating what Spain did. Yes, they should have, they left and that was definitely right to do. They should have never been there in the first place. Mm. But I do think they did have a responsibility to make sure that they handed it back to the right person. That the process of, you know, independence would have gone smoothly. Yeah, because you still have, I think, account, they still had accountability for that. You know, you can't just do mic drop, let me give it to the first, you know, couple of countries who say it's theirs. Like, it doesn't... That's not right and that's not fair. Mm -hmm. It needs to be a smooth handover, essentially, you know? That's... that's, Yeah. Yeah, you can't just... If you have the audacity to colonise a country, at least you should have the balls to also hand it back properly. Yeah, to hand it back properly and actually be like, okay, (laughs) this is what we've done let's make it right and do it right as well rather than just kind of like throw it up and just be like okay someone will take it they'll have it fine yeah once spain left the polisario front began to fight to remove morocco and mauritania so four years after the madrid accord was agreed the polisario front successfully fought mauritania and a military coup overthrew the civilian government and brought about a ceasefire so again, we've got a classic coup situation. Coup. We are ticking like all the classic things you can expect in an intercontinent this episode. This is everything you can expect for us. If everything. You want. Coup. <laughs> Oil. Yeah. <laughs> Equals. <laughs> Try. Chini will attempt to put in a football reference. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we do. <laughs> Mauritania soon signed a peace agreement which claimed the end of their rule in Western Sahara. Now that the southern half of Western Sahara had been vacated, Morocco quickly came to claim the areas as its own. So yeah, Morocco here again being like, okay, that that is now also mine. (laughs) From the onset, the Polisario has been backed by Algeria, who has provided military and political support and a piece of land in southwest Algeria in a town called Tindouf. Tindouf is the headquarters of the SADR, and it's made up of temporary homes for the Sararis who fled Western Sahara in 1975 and 76 to escape the invading Moroccan and Mauritania armies. Morocco proved to be more difficult for the Polisario to remove, as they've used different tactics throughout the years to assert their dominance and prevent people and countries from backing the idea of an independent Western Sahara. In the 80s, for example, Morocco decided to build a 2,700 kilometre wall, so for those of you who work in miles, just over 1,500 miles, known as the Berm. This is a wall that runs through Western Sahara and separates the territory under Moroccan control from that of the Polisario. This is the second largest wall after the Great Wall of China. So yeah, this is this is the yeah. wall of walls, basically. The wall <laughs> of walls. 
The wall is guarded by Moroccan soldiers and there are line mines which dot the length of the wall, making it one of the most heavily mined places in the world as a result of the conflict between Morocco and the Polisario. Also, following 9-11, Morocco argued that an independent Western Sahara would become a haven for terrorists. So they were really like, we're doing the utmost to prevent people from allowing Saharis to get and to have an independent country, to make their country independent. Also, walls. What is up with leaders being obsessed yeah, with walls? Yeah, what is this? Th- what is this? <laughs> I don't think that wall in Mexico got built, though. I don't... Maybe he might try it again. Yeah, it's honestly... A wall... Like, walls. Really, people? Why are we... It makes no sense to me. Between 1975 and 1991, the Polisario fought in a 16-year-long guerrilla war against Moroccan forces in order to reclaim uh, their country. And this finally ended with a United Nations brokered ceasefire. But even with the ceasefire, Morocco continues to control Western Sahara. Uh, and the Western Saharan conflict has divided the Swari nation into three geographical areas. The part under Moroccan occupation, which is 80% of the country, and the liberated territories is the 20% recovered by the Polisario during the war. There's also the group of Swari people that have taken refuge in Tinduf in Algeria. And the question that I ask is why is Algeria involved in this? Um, and according to Professor John Damis, the conflict is regional in nature, its roots are local, and the dynamics which fuel the war are tied to regional rivalries between Morocco and Algeria. The dispute over Western Sahara reflects a struggle between systems a moderate monarchy and a liberal economy in Morocco versus an authoritarian one-party regime in Algeria. And for this reason, the struggle for control of Saharan territory forms part of a larger geopolitical struggle for influence and dominance in Northwest Africa. It's also important to recognise the impact of this situation on the Swari people and in the documentary Life is Waiting, the poet Bahia Awa emphasises the instability of the Swari culture by explaining that Sawari culture is completely oral with the memories of grandparents, parents, aunts and uncles. Without having this constant contact with them and looking for these stories within their memories, we will remain rootless for the rest of our lives. And yeah, this is similar to other countries uh, within the continent. Um, so we know that oral traditions had been erased as a result of colonialism or you know, yeah. forcing people to learn another language and mm-hmm. the losing language within a culture, for instance. Yeah, definitely. And I just think like with the piece around what the um, what you said around kind of the culture piece and the memories. And it's so it's quite heartbreaking that, you know, it's those people who are holding those memories. And when they go, it's gone Mm. and they don't have a country. If you think about it, when you go on holiday, whenever that will be it ever again, you know, it's the statues and it's the historical buildings and everything that Mm. form part of that history. But for this community, they don't have that. They've not been able to build that. Because they've been so, they've been just separated into these three different areas that they've not had the opportunity to really build what we would see as like a traditional country with history, really. Yeah, definitely. And it gets worse, uh, particularly with generations coming in, um, generations passing away. That contributes to that erasure of the country as well. Definitely, definitely. Um, Another point we wanted to highlight was how this kind of 
if you've listened to our first episode uh, of season two, we, we talk about uh, Colonel Gaddafi and how is there a sort of barrier between Northern Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, quote unquote. But actually, we see that the struggles are quite similar across the continent. So whether it's a black uh, African country or perhaps a country that's Arab, we do see that there, there are similar struggles in the fact that history has been erased in, in this sense. And it's just even like, what do you, what are the stories you share? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Okay, this, this bit of it really gets to me because I just feel like they're so... If you were to go on to, what's that thing? Ancestry.com? Yeah, do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, we, we can't even do that, to be honest. <laughs> okay, yeah, I can't go on that. Yeah, that's true. There's okay. nothing there. I have, I have, I have tried. I have, actually. Yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing, there's nothing. But at least I think I'm grateful for the fact that I know a bit and I can still, you know, I have access to my country of birth. Yeah, Whereas we're talking about a nation where the majority of people cannot access, it's occupied by another country who have a different culture. I think as much as we can't go on (laughs) Ancestry.com, we still still have some form of knowledge. Yeah, and we still have that connection up to a point. So yeah, it's just a massive shame that it's not there at the moment for them. As part of our new African Pride segment, I wanted to raise awareness of a Sarari woman who, during my research, I found incredibly inspiring. So this is Aminatu Haydar. She's a human rights activist who was born in Western Sahara when it was under Spanish colonial rule. She's often referred to as Sarari Gandhi. She has been beaten, tortured, imprisoned, detained, and interrogated without charge or trial by the Moroccan government for her protests against Morocco's rule in Western Sahara. She also went on hunger strike for 32 days after being denied re-entry into Western Sahara because she refused to describe herself as a Moroccan citizen in the entry documents. Her hunger strike left her bones brittle and her vertebrae in her back warped. And one of the reasons I've just found her so amazing, not just because of literally everything she's gone through, Mm. is that no one else has ever gone against the King of Morocco. He threatened that if she didn't apologise, she would not be able to re-enter Western Sahara. But she was like, no, I'm not going to apologise. I'm not going to do that. She, you know, she was able to re-enter the country after the 32 days hunger strike without apologising. And in the documentary Life is Waiting, Aminatu explains her reason for going on hunger strike um, by stating that it was a lesson in dignity rather than a message of dignity to governments who have no principles, to transmit to them that with a strong will, one can do everything. My children can live as orphans, but they cannot live without dignity. Wow, that's an incredible final statement there. Amazing that there's just this strong sense of, do you know what, we... They definitely, they do deserve this as a community, like a people. That's what they need, you know, first things first. You want that place that helps bring you guys together and really helps you connect and identify with. And they don't have that. And there's been, I can't remember, but I've been watching a lot of things around like how, you know, this whole piece around activism at the moment. And it's not just about saying and posting and all of that, but Mm, also being able to really risk doing and risking your life yeah for something you so strongly believe in because you realize that she's saying you know her children can live as orphans but they cannot live without dignity this country means so much that it provides them with that dignity that they've lost through morocco's takeover so she is my inspiration of yeah for this week episode 
Now we're going to discuss Western Sahara and the United Nations. Um, and another key character in this story is the United Nations, also known commonly as the UN. The UN considers Western Sahara's current situation as an incomplete process of decolonization, which they've been trying to resolve, but many Swaris continue to feel that the UN has been ineffective in bringing the conflicts to a close and ensuring their freedom. Again, in the documentary, Life is Waiting, the SADR's current president, uh, Brahim Ghali, says that how in 1991, we put all our trust and confidence in the international community. Um, and in that case, he was referring to the ceasefire. And since then, three generations of people have lived in the camps in Tinduf. So that kind of shows how long this situation has been going for. And um, it's no wonder that Swaris are distrustful of the UN because they're still waiting for that positive outcome. Imagine, like, oh no, it'll be next year. No, it'll be next year. Three generations. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's... Since 1991 is already a long time. Like, it's... Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1991, the UN established the MINURSO, which stands for the United Nations Mission for the Referendum in Western Sahara, as part of the ceasefire agreement between Morocco and the Polisario Front. Its purpose was to organise and ensure a free and fair referendum in which the people of Western Sahara would decide between independence or integration with Morocco. Minruso's first job was to establish a way of identifying Suarez eligible to vote in the referendum. This job was the most controversial and continues to be because the plan was to use the consensus of 1974 conducted by Spain to decide those eligible to take part in the referendum. However, Morocco wanted to also include the great-grandchildren of people born in Western Sahara, whilst the Polisario Front wanted to include other additional criteria. So, as you can see, both groups never agreed, and this was just, this was just step one of the referendum. So yeah, we, we're just like, the referendum was something that Spain should have done before they decided to just be like, okay, yeah, uh, you're independent. I don't really think that Spain is even involved at this point now. Like, they've just kind of just left them to it, haven't they? Yeah, left them with the 1974 uh, census and be like, okay, you guys, you guys deal with that. Go and figure it out. Of course, they're never going to come to an agreement, especially because Morocco are like, this is mine. I've got phosphate out here, oil, <laughs> fish. I'm, I'm not moving. We're counting great-grandchildren. We're counting the great-great-grandchildren. Do you know what I mean? Those who, mm, those people who can't remember the conflict. Mm. Mm, yeah, we're counting the great-grandchildren's invisible friends. Like, that's <laughs> just... <laughs> I'm sorry, I just can't even... Like, it's at, it's at that level now. Yeah, it's like, who knew that a referendum could be this complicated? Mm. <laughs> Tell me about it. Gosh, makes us makes you a bit grateful for how quickly apparently the UK one was in comparison to this. Yeah. I mean, how many years later and it still haven't acted on it, but you know. It's, Do you know what I mean? Certainly step, more one, 19, <laughs> step one, 1991, still not completed. Yeah. The world's, probably goes down in the world's longest referendum, attempted referendum anyways. <laughs> The Minruso is the only UN peacekeeping mission that does not include a mandate to observe and report human rights violations. Red flag. This is the reddest of alerts. (laughs) (laughs) What is redder than red? (laughs) Crimson. (laughs) This is just bizarre, especially when you just take the Aminatu Haida as an example. And the lack of this mandate has allowed Morocco to get away with numerous atrocities as it works to erase the Swari identity. Reporters Without Borders express how Morocco controls information in the territory with an iron fist, ruthlessly punishing the practice of local journalism and blocking foreign media access. 
with torture, intimidation, lengthy prison sentences, being daily fare for Swari journalists. So yeah, I just thought Morocco was a nice place where you could, you know, have a little spa, drink a tea. But uh, yeah, there's a bit of a darker side to the country here. Definitely. In the Life is Waiting documentary, the activist Zainaha Abdelhadi emphasises that double standard is very typical of Moroccan regime, which usually considers murder, for example, a lesser crime. But when it comes to being pro-independent, you are then destined to an unknown fate with a one-way ticket. You can become a victim of disappearance without a trial or due process. They abduct you and nullify your existence. Um, so again, like dissident voices being silenced is usually an indicator to a regime that's obviously not operating in a legal way. And considering that they, the UN is there and the UN isn't even looking at human rights violations, yeah. that just goes to show like that's allowing them to get away with so much more. Because I always kind of see the UN as like the this mediator. controllers of, yeah, the yeah, mediators yeah. of like countries. But even if they've not put a mandate in there, like... Mm. You must be like, okay, well, I can get away with what I want then. There's no one really holding me accountable. And just going back to the fact that not many people, I don't think, are really aware of what's going on in that region. Yeah. Like, they can get away with it. It's not visible to us. No, exactly, exactly. Because I guess if you have um, this, it's almost like a sort of censorship in in a sense, I feel, because, Mm -hmm. you know, and even when it came to researching this, it was quite difficult to get hold of, you know, the relevant sources, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was really difficult to just get the information together. There's not much on there. Yeah, it's really important, I think, for those listening to just carry on, do some research around it and really get to understand what's going on in this country. Because, Mm. yeah, I think it's important for us also just yeah to show support definitely where are we now over the past 40 years we've essentially had the same players involved in trying to resolve the conflict in western sahara so you've got the un morocco the polisario with support from algeria the lack of alignment between morocco and the polisario has meant negotiations never really progress and the conflict remains frozen with no clear timelines as to when there'll be a referendum. What's made the situation even more difficult is that as time has passed, it's become almost impossible to determine who would have the right to vote on a referendum for independence. And this leaves us with an important question, where do we go from here? <laughs> Honestly, that is a question. That Fa- we... do, you, do you fancy answering that one? Yeah. You go first. <laughs> that I am not but yeah it seems like a pretty much a deadlock situation um this is like more deadlock than Brexit that's the comparator I have (laughs) and also the fact that Morocco's strategy has just been a wait and drag this out as long as possible because people will people will forget will forget 1974 census what a what are we yeah we can't be we can't be using that yeah they're gonna be at this point great 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 grandchildren and so many invisible friends that we're you know (laughs) yeah this is essentially an erasure of culture really because that's what then happens through these differing generations and the longer this goes on for the more people aren't really going to remember those initial um, atrocities so yeah it's it's Mm. quite a dangerous kind of path i think i hope it comes to a conclusion that is fair and um gives the independence that's needed for western sahara yeah but we'll just wait and see i hope they're able to change their name of the country (laughs) because something that reflects the culture more accurately you know 
that is us with episode two of season two thank you so much for listening guys it's Thanks, been guys. an interesting one exploring western sahara yeah i do massively encourage you guys to just do more research just try and get to learn more about this country and the situation that its people are currently facing and what have we got coming up next what's episode three yes so our next episode is going to be looking at cameroon and the ongoing conflict that is happening there um, as a result of um, a split between French and British occupation. So, yeah, I'd say it's similar because it is an ongoing conflict that we might not immediately be aware of. Another one. I'm loving it. We're bringing news and stories that, you know, we never got thought about. Exactly. That is what we do. Um, So, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Make sure you um, give us a rating on your podcast platform. Um, And also we're on Instagram as at It's a Continent Pod and on Twitter as well as It's a Continent. Thanks guys and we will yeah catch you soon. See you later. Bye. Yeah bye.